This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien. Thomas Mayo is a Kurrareg Aboriginal and Kalkagal Erubumle Torres Strait Islander man. He's also a leading advocate for the Voice to Parliament. Kerry O'Brien is a veteran journalist and former broadcaster at the ABC. Both Thomas and Kerry sat down with me for a special in-depth conversation about the proposed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice to Parliament. Australia will vote on the Voice to Parliament in a referendum later this year. Thomas and Kerry explained the history behind The Voice, why we should support it, and they also debunk some of the myths and misconceptions around it. Their Voice to Parliament handbook is out now through Hardy Grant Books. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 R FM with me, Amy Mullins. It is my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome two fabulous guests, one of which I've met in the flesh before, another who it is a real privilege to meet today for the very first time. They've both written a book together and they are Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien. Now, Thomas Mayo is a Kurrareg Aboriginal and Kalkagal Erebumle Torres Strait Islander man. He is a union official with the MUA and is an advocate in the campaign for a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament, which is the key proposal in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Thomas is also the author of a number of excellent books, including Finding the Heart of the Nation. He's also authored and co-authored other books, including Dear Son, Freedom Day, and Finding Our Heart, which is an excellent children's book about this very issue of the voice to parliament and, of course, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And also, as I mentioned, speaking with us today is Kerry O'Brien, who many of you will know from his work as a prominent Australian journalist and broadcaster. His career spans many decades in the national current affairs arena, including on television, where he was most prominent hosting and presenting programs like This Day Tonight and Four Corners, as well as Late Line and The 7.30 Report. Kerry O'Brien has also written books, including a memoir of which I spoke with him about in 2018. So it's really wonderful to have both Thomas and Kerry join us. And we're having this conversation from a couple of places. We're here from the Wurundjeri lands. We're also here from the Wuthering as well. So it's really great and a privilege to have this conversation in two different places at once in a way. So thank you and welcome to Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien. We are today talking about their new book, which has just come out called The Voice to Parliament Handbook, All the Detail You Need. I feel like there's a bit of a wink at the end of the subtitle there. So welcome to the show, Thomas. Thank you, Amy. And hello there, Kerry, and welcome. Good to see you again, Amy. Great to have you both. Congratulations on this fantastic handbook. It's truly very accessible, loving the cartoons and the visual imagery in it too. But I want to, before we jump into the contents of the book, talk about how you both came to this project, how you met, and then we'll delve into some of the issues of the Voice to Parliament. So Thomas, would you like to start? Yeah, thanks, Amy. I, I came to be involved in this, you know, through my advocacy as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man, trying to get better outcomes for our people, um, taking up the fight against uh, all sorts of injustices that were going on. 
and then getting involved in the process that led to the making of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I wrote my first book in 2019 after 12 months on the, you know, traveling around the country with the, the original Uluru Statement canvas, just helping to build the momentum, refusing to take no for an answer from Malcolm Turnbull, you know, from the government, which was predicted by us, you know, Indigenous people, that every other time we've made a statement and petition, the King or the Queen or the Parliament has dismissed it. So I wrote that first book called Finding the Heart of the Nation, and Kerry was one of uh, the people that interviewed me in my tour launching that book in Byron Bay. And then I um, did a couple of other events with Kerry over the years, and I came to a realisation pretty early in the advocacy for the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which began in 2017, that um, you can't take it for granted that people will understand how to advocate. You know, So you can ask people to support. Uh, it's the most common question that I've had in my travels over the last six years. But um, you, you need to give people the tools to advocate for it, especially being an Indigenous matter where people, non-Indigenous people especially, are a bit uncomfortable. I wanted to write a book when we had a commitment to a referendum that would be very, a handbook, just simple, um, accessible, easy to understand. I was originally thinking about self-publishing it, but then we went to Hardy Grant, the publisher of this, and, and they took it up. And I wanted a, a co-author because I was running out of time in about September last year. And I wanted a non-Indigenous co-author because this is about all Australians. And uh, I, I invited Kerry. I was very happy when Kerry accepted that invitation and we got stuck into it. We wrote the book between December and February, really, the, the first draft, and had it all done by March. Yeah, and I hear that the orders are going up and up, aren't they? They sure are. It's um, one, of the, one of the early reassuring things about this whole process, Amy, is that um, Hardy Grant started with, uh, with a print run. They said they would plan a print run of about 8,000, and Perhaps some of them thought that was a bit brave because often I think the first print run of a book might only be two or 3,000 copies. But even even a month or more before we were due to, to, before it was due to go to print, they'd up that from eight to 13 and then it was up to from 13 to 19 and just in this last, uh, this last week it's gone from 19 to 29 and now the print run is 39,000 and that's reflecting the very heavy demand that's happening all over the place and, and the reassuring thing about that is that uh, many of the people that we've already met and signed books for at other events, like the one we're doing tonight in Carlton, they've all pretty much been saying the same thing, that even though they have a strong desire to vote yes, that they have had their confidence shaken a little bit by some of the stuff that's out in the airwaves, the, the kind of confusing material, it's some of it really quite misleading. We've also had the feedback from some of those who have read the book that it is exactly what they wanted. So that, that was our hope, and that's the way it seems to be turning out. And if we can make any contribution towards a yes vote around the nation in October or November, I will, whenever it comes, I will die a happy man. Absolutely. The stakes are really high, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I saw both of you give evidence at the Joint Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice Referendum Committee hearing in April, middle of April. And Kerry, when you were talking about your experiences and life experiences coming to this issue, you were talking about your upbringing in Queensland and how, you know, the people around you were very much ignorant 
of life for Aboriginal people. You didn't even see them in your school when you were going to school. Could you tell us a bit about how you came to this issue, not only growing up, but then as a journalist, as you say, you did so many stories and, you know, you've had the ability to look at this issue from a very much a historical perspective, having lived through so many of the decades of Mm. of failures. Uh, Amy, I was raised Catholic and I'm no longer Catholic, but the the kind of the, the culture and the sort of, if you strip away the religion, the philosophy that underpinned so much of it for me as a child, one of the things that resonated so much that really has been ingrained in my whole life has been a saying attributed to Christ, which was, do unto others as you would have them do to you. In other words, treat others as fairly as you want to be treated yourself. And for a very long time, I think I was unaware as I went, as I began my life as a journalist, pretty ignorant, as, as you say, about Indigenous history, about Indigenous culture, tradition, about the fact that it was uh, a unique 65,000 year plus continuous civilization. Probably the one real standout unique feature about this country that no other country can, can take pride in, as we can. But I had a very rude, sharp, rapid education as a journalist. Uh, I went to Alice Springs on a completely different story that had nothing to do with Indigenous issues and was shocked to my core uh, by what I saw, by the obvious racism and the, the misery that I could see associated with that. I've never, I've always understood that I, I can never put myself in the shoes of an Indigenous person and translate the pain and the scars that they carry over the course of a lifetime, but we can try. And I went back to Alice uh, in 75 for Four Corners and did a a program about six young Indigenous kids, really. They were young adults, but they were kids who were railroaded into prison with concocted confessions for a murder that they did not commit, the brutal bashing of a young Indigenous woman. They cut the long story short, it was demonstrated after they'd been in prison waiting, awaiting trial, it was demonstrated in court that uh, anybody who knew their language would understand that they could not possibly have written those, those confessions that were attributed to them in English. They uh, were, were, were freed uh, and a Royal Commission was established. Well, a, a Royal Commission was announced by the, the Whitlam government. Five weeks later, Gough Whitlam was sacked. The Royal Commission never took place because Malcolm Fraser and his government opted not to, and it took another 12 years. That was a Royal Commission into Relations between Indigenous people and police in the Territory. took another 12 years and God knows how many deaths in custody before Bob Hawke reluctantly announced a Royal Commission into deaths in custody after another Four Corners story done by David Maher. And uh, that Royal Commission ultimately, after years uh, of revelations, came up with 338 recommendations for all state governments, territory governments, and and the national government to endeavour to actually stop the brutality of that process and the injustice of that process of deaths in custody. Well, most of those recommendations have been ignored over time, and this is what brings us, it for me underscores as much as just about anything, what has been so wrong in our government processes in regard to the development of Indigenous policy, that the Indigenous voices have so rarely been heard and when they have been heard and when, when enlightened policy emerges as a result of that, we've seen fantastic outcomes. And you see there, there is at the heart of it that uh, there's been no continuity of an Indigenous voice from government to government. 
the, the the new government comes in, it wants to change the things of the previous government, and one of the first casualties often is the existing voice that gets reshaped, or in the case of the Howard government with ATSIC, ATSIC was absolutely abolished against the recommendations of a review that the government itself actually asked for. And so we arrive in this space now with, with so much failed policy, with so many gaps at so many levels of uh, like health and edu- we, we know them, mm. justice system, health, education and so on. And at the heart of what Indigenous people are calling for is the really simple concept of fairness. Fairness. The most uh, marginalised community in Australia for 235 years. Mm. Yeah. And when I was reading about ATSIC, I forgot that it was actually supported by Mark Latham, you know, the opposition, Labor, getting rid of that body. Yeah. Uh, It was clear from when John Howard came into office that uh, ATSIC's days were numbered. It lasted a number of years after they got there because I think they found it too hard to shift. But when Mark Latham announced that Labor no longer supported ATSIC, John Howard took his cue and off he went. You know, he he called this review led by a, a, a former Liberal Attorney General from New South Wales, John Hannaford, and everyone expected that that review would find that ATSIC should be abolished. But on the contrary, it, it said that ATSIC had real value, that it simply needed to refresh its relations and revitalise its relations with uh, with regional communities. Instead, John Howard chose to abolish it, and all of the all of the responsibilities of ATSIC were were placed back in individual departments, and Indigenous influence was utterly diluted. And yeah. so it went. There's another point to be made about the way Howard got rid of ATSIC. There was a strategy of not just softening up the Australian public, but you know the opposition as well by amplifying any problems that ATSIC had. Certainly didn't celebrate anything good that ATSIC was doing, you know, uh, and it was doing some great things across Australia in our communities. He defunded ATSIC as one of the first things that he did to it to cause our people, division amongst our people, fighting over what's left because it was a service provider and just really, yeah, softened up the public before he did that and then when he did finally repeal it with the support of the Latham Labor opposition, um, there really was not much of a, of a pushback. There was no repercussion, even though he went against the, you know, his own committee's advice and what happened after ATSIC was destroyed, after that voice was silenced, is really important as well. Yeah. You saw the Northern Territory intervention, the Racial Discrimination Act suspended to, to roll the Australian Army in against our most vulnerable communities in the Northern Territory. We saw Abbott come along, cut hundreds of millions of dollars from frontline community services. We saw the Minister for Indigenous Affairs give money meant for Indigenous benefit in the Northern Territory to non-Indigenous organisations that then use those funds to fight against any advancement of Indigenous people uh, when it comes to land rights. Uh, it, it really, when you remove a voice for a people, if a people are voiceless, you know, they are easily exploited, um, easily divided. Uh, if you don't have that structure, and, uh, and that is what we're seeking to do with this, is just simply we know we must re-establish a voice, but we know like ATSIC and many others before it, the NAC, uh, Aboriginal Advancement League, some removed by changes of policy by successive governments, some removed by simple intimidation of the leadership of our voice by 
the legal right to steal our children, to direct us to work without pay, to exile us from country, every time they've silenced a voice. So we know we need to re-establish one, but we need to do it in the Constitution this time so that the likes of Howard can't come along, because they always come along. Mm. The likes of Howard can't come along and just get rid of it, because we always go backwards when we're silent. You know, uh, I think it's it's clear, certainly clear to me, that, uh, that if ATSIC had not been abolished, there would have been no intervention. Well, this is the it key wouldn't have thing happened. For, for the Uluru family who live in Mudatjuli. Sammy Wilson is the head of the Uluru family. There's a book called I Am Uluru. Just for the listeners, I, I encourage you to look it up. But the Uluru family give their name Uluru to the Uluru Statement from the Heart because of the intervention, because they don't want to be... Mudatjuli was a community where they first rolled into and really yeah. disempowered them, demonised them. You know, people were looking at Indigenous people, not just in the Northern Territory, but all around the country, as if our children needed protection from uh, their fathers because of our race, you know, because we're Indigenous, because of our heritage and culture. They don't want to be standing alone without a voice. The solidarity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country to stop something like the intervention happening again. And you could see it in Dutton's rhetoric not that long ago, when he went to Alice Springs, fly in, fly out to Alice Springs from Canberra, stirring up, you know, this sort of uh, fear and, uh, you know, and, and without any evidence when he was challenged, an intervention could happen again. You know, this this is how that this begins, this sort of, uh, you know, alarmist ignorance. Ig- ignorance to also the, the legacy, it is the legacy of those funding cuts and the the Northern Territory intervention that is is seeing that greater you know the social dysfunction in those communities now. And that was a circumstance where Indigenous people, I believe, were were pawns in the game of politics. And this is my belief. Yeah, I think it's a reasonable assumption based uh, in part on on uh, the fact that the Howard government knew it was in trouble politically. Uh, a few months out from the uh, from the 2007 election uh, when the intervention was announced. And in November, after the election, Alexander Downer, a senior minister in the Howard Cabinet, appeared on Barry Cassidy's Insiders program on the ABC one Sunday morning and said that they, as in the government, were surprised that there was no bounce in the polls as a result of the intervention. Now, you make your own conclusions from that. I've made mine. I think my conclusions would be yours also, Kerry. I'm really glad we've covered some of the history of that struggle for an effective voice, which that's part of a chapter in this handbook, actually. And I think that that historical context is often missing from this present day discussion. And maybe I'm also biased because I'm a history graduate, so I would love to talk about history, but it does inform us right now in our discussions around this referendum, around this proposal for a voice. From your perspective, Thomas, and some of the ground we've already covered in terms of that historic struggle for a voice, how do you see this present day voice as it pertains to that historical context? Why does it mean it's even more important for this referendum to succeed because of that historical background of of the failures of governments? Well, it's about guaranteeing that we have a voice. The only way that you can put it out of the reach of a hostile government is to put it in the rule book of the nation. And that's a simple way of describing the constitution. It's the rule book of the nation. 
that only the Australian people can change. I mean, you can imagine the way Dutton is carrying on about this and telling all sorts of lies about what it is and, uh, you know, the, the dog whistling that's going on. Can you imagine if he ever won government, what he would do with the voice if it was only legislated? A simple majority in parliament getting rid of it? I mean, he would get rid of it, mm. absolutely. So so that that history, you know, we could not ignore when we came together at Uluru. We had to set up a voice and we had to do it in a different way. And, and that's what this is, um, this is what this will do. But it's also recognition, you know, talking about history, 1901, the Constitution, the Federation of Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were described as a dying race. And for decades after the Federation of Australia, the massacres continued and the discriminatory uh, and prejudice and cruel policies and, and laws continued as well for for much of the 20th century. And so we need to learn from from that as well. This is a, a, an important thing about recognising us because a constitution does not recognise our existence. It was made without us, no Indigenous people, no woman either in those constitutional conventions. And we deserve to be recognised. We acknowledge country all the time. We celebrate now more than ever our, our languages, our art, our you know, generally our culture. Um, the dream time at the G was the other day, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's something that should be included in our constitution, and it really is something that then makes this country uh, unique in the world. You know that we can genuinely celebrate as as what it is that we are as Australians. This over sixty thousand years heritage and culture that we all share. When when. Uh... Thomas talks about uh, about the role that Peter Dutton has chosen to play, and I don't, I don't. I'm trying to avoid engaging in the kind of direct political stuff. But, but uh, Julian Lisa, the former Indigenous Affairs spokesman on Peter Dutton's front bench, until on a matter of principle, he quit the front bench so that he could speak freely about his support for the Voice, and it's something he's been engaged in for a very long time. He said in the Parliament yesterday, on the question that. Um, that the voice would not deliver, as is claimed, better outcomes for Indigenous people. And as reported in the Sydney Morning Herald, he said to Parliament that the body, as in the voice, would eliminate the economic and social differences between Indigenous and other Australians, rather than creating two classes of Australians. And that is one of the claims that the No campaign is trying to make to damage the voice. And Peter Dutton has tied himself to that it will not create two Australias. It will unite Australia more than it has ever been united in the past. And here is Julian Lisa. Until a blink of an eye ago, Peter Dutton's spokesman on Indigenous relations. The more you actually delve into the claims that are being made by the no campaigners, the more you see the superficiality, the speciousness and the falseness of so many of the claims they're trying to make to cloud the picture, to confuse people to do anything to get the no vote. I do not understand where it's coming from. I really don't. It's not. This is not an ideological issue. This is about fairness. It's about justice. It's about improving the nature and the character of what we are as Australians. And I have no doubt, put it this way, it could not possibly make the situation of Indigenous people in this country any worse. What have we got to lose? Indeed. I couldn't agree more. 
I was struck by when we were talking about Peter Dutton and his role in the political aspect of this. I know that, Thomas, you've been part of the referendum working group and, of course, also involved in those Uluru dialogues and the convention. So you very much had a up-close view of not only how First Nations people got together and had these really intensive debates and discussions about what they wanted to do and propose to the Australian people and how they wanted to speak to all Australians, but then you've also seen that political way of how things are done or how the sausage is made, so to speak, when it comes to legislation for the referendum and that kind of thing. And I just thought it would also be nice to get a sense of where this Uluru statement came from, what kind of discussions and debates, you know, the character of them, how this was created, because I think a lot of people aren't aware of that generosity of spirit, but also the fact that as you have pointed out, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are not a homogenous group and you all got together a very diverse group of people to really think hard and debate hard these issues. And you've come up with something which is so well thought through, so well considered and generous. So I just thought it would be a nice opportunity to hear from you and your personal experiences, you know, being part of that, but witnessing that and what you took from it. Yeah, well, the things that we were marching on the streets about, uh, you know, those massive funding cuts that I mentioned under Abbott, the treatment of uh, youth in detention in the Don Dale facility in Darwin, uh, exposed by Four Corners, you know, the deaths in custody that were continuing, you know, just injustice after injustice. This was all since the voice ATSIC was silenced and the gap was widening. So in this crisis, 39 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders basically called on the Prime Minister and, an op- and the opposition leader. It was... Uh, it was Tony Abbott and Bill Shorten at the time, in 2015 to meet with them. And they met at Kirribilli and the Kirribilli statement was made, which recorded what our leaders were saying. And they said a couple of things that are really important to this. They said, firstly, when it comes to constitutional recognition, which had been in the national discourse for you know some decades before, we are not interested in symbolic recognition. What we seek is a substantive form of constitutional recognition that will provide us us, as Indigenous people greater fairness. And secondly, that understanding that meetings uh, are held and and nothing much happens afterwards, we, we propose that a referendum council is established to continue the work and take the question to Indigenous communities around the country and to the Australian people, the question being, What form of constitutional recognition could we accept? And so the Referendum Council was formed. It was uh, around 50% Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. The Referendum Council ran dialogues covering the entire continent and adjacent islands. There were three days each. They were well informed. There were intense lessons on civics, 100 participants at each, not to exclude anybody but to ensure that there was a cross-section of types of advocate in our communities. So not just the practised people like me by then, you know, that, that knew how to be heard, but the quieter advocates, the healers, the people doing the frontline services. There was also 60% traditional owners for each region to ensure the cultural authority was in the room. And they elected delegates uh, and, and uh, endorsed an accurate record of meeting. And the delegates' role when they went to the culminating convention at Uluru was to uh, synthesise the results, the priorities set in each of the regions. 
and do the hard work, another three days at Uluru, to reach a, a consensus. Um, we were hopeful that we'd reach a, an agreement on a collective statement. And that was really difficult. Uh, I was in the Darwin Dialogue. I was elected out of the Darwin Dialogue. It was um, the late Uncle Jack R. Kitt that um, nominated me. I went to Uluru, passionate debate and discussion on the second of three days. Uh, around 20 of 270 of our people walked out, you know, straight into a media scrum in protest. But that's normal. You know, that's politics. Uh, factions form. They try and leverage their position, but 250 of us remained. And and uh, on the final morning, after some of us had worked through the night into the early hours of the morning, we heard the Uluru Statement from the Heart read for the first time. And it was a political feat that should be celebrated in this country forever. We stood as one, 250 of us, from all of those different places in the country with all of our different views and perspectives and political ideologies, even different occupations, we stood as one and endorsed it with standing acclamation. And um, and that's what brings us to the voice. And it frustrates me when you hear the No campaign say that this is about a Canberra voice, that this is Albo's idea, you know, this is a Labor voice. It's not. It has genuinely come from our people putting our heads together in a unique opportunity, considering the, the, the lessons from the history of our struggle and, and using using good logic and sense as well to make a set of proposals that are uh, achievable yet powerful. The other strand to this that was that after that extraordinary moment of consensus and the history-making of it and the eloquence of the statement and the, and the humility of the statement in a way, um, the generosity of it, they were charged... The, 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 there was another process called the co-design process to actually consult Indigenous people again on what shape this voice might take. And that was led by, amongst others, Tom Carmer and uh, Marcia Langton. And I listened to them give evidence on that day in the, in the joint committee hearings when Thomas and I were there in Canberra. And, you know, the kind of integrity, the authenticity of everything that they have to say and how they spelt out the tenor of those meetings, 110 meetings, 4,000 submissions, 10,000 people consulted. And there was a uniformity of what was coming at them. But to hear Marcia talking about the kinds of statements that were being made again and again and again about things like fly-in, fly-out bureaucrats who would come to regional and remote communities, take copious notes, make many promises, fly out again, never to be heard from again. And, you know, that image summarises so much of what has been wrong about the way Indigenous policy has been made in this country for decades, from the centre, made from Canberra, mostly by white bureaucrats and white politicians, many of whom didn't even do the fly-in, fly-out. It has been screaming to be addressed, screaming to be addressed. And there are so many people through that past history who testify to that, and they're not all Indigenous people. They're people like Fred Cheney, mm. who was an Indigenous Affairs Minister to all the way back to Malcolm Fraser and then has invested the rest of his life in Indigenous matters. He was on the, tribu the Native Title Tribunal. He was uh, on the Referendum Council. Mm. Uh, you know, these guys know that these... They, they, Fiona they've, Stanley. They've, yeah, Fiona, Fiona Stanley, Stanley yeah. you know, who has contributed to this book along with Marcia talking, giving examples of how great policy is made and high impact policy is made when people do listen 
to Indigenous wisdom and knowledge. So uh, I so understand Thomas's frustration <laughs> and the frustration of all the people who've been associated with this process. When they labour mightily through it, they invest themselves in every way, intellectually, emotionally, historically, and then they see the tripe that's being trotted out purely to damage and undo and sabotage this wonderful process and this extraordinary document that's emerged from it. Yeah. And as you have rightly said, Thomas, you've been a very busy man going around the country, you know, even with the statement, traveling around, but even before that, advocating on this issue, just like so many of your mob and many other First Nations peoples, like this is a a years and decades long project, obviously. This hasn't come out of nowhere, as you've just basically told us. This is something that's taken such a long time. Yeah, well, there's another thing about the statements and petitions. Not only were they all dismissed, uh, probably with the exception of the Barunga statement, which is where Bob Hawke was a prime minister and he did deliver on the promise of uh, a voice, which was ATSIC. But all of those other statements and petitions, so you know, the, the one in the 30s, uh, William Cooper and the leaders of the time, the petition to the to the king that was, um, the I'll just give several examples, the 1963 Yakala Bark petitions, uh, the 1972 Larrakia petition to the queen. Um, every one of these statements and petitions throughout the history of our struggle have called for a voice. This isn't something new that we are advocating for here. This is something that is consistent throughout our history. And um, so this is another occasion but this time we've we've learnt to say to the Australian people not to a king or a queen or a, or a parliament to the Australian people help us to put it out of the reach of hostile governments in the future and that is by putting it in the constitution yeah I think we need to understand when we're aiming it and and it continues to be an eye-opener to me I mean I think we're a pretty educated nation and I think we're a pretty aware nation we're full of contradictions in the late 1880s, before we became a nation, Australia per capita had the highest rate of newspaper consumption in the world. And yet, uh, for all that education, there is such a level of ignorance on so many fronts and so many holes. Uh, and one of them is the number of people who don't even know that there is a referendum process looming. Many people many people don't even know what a referendum is. And... Um, mm. And so that's, you know, that is another thing that's driven us with this, with this handbook. We're really operating at a base level of laying out whatever complexities there might be around the simplicity of what is at the centre of all this. The proposition of the voice is simple, but some people are endeavouring to make it sound complex. And I think, you know, one of the things that is so important between now and October is that those people who are or do become committed to wanting to see this voice happen, taking the opportunity for the people of Australia to actually change the rule book, which is, I think, the most powerful expression of democracy that we have as individuals. Yes or no, do you accept or reject this proposition as Australians? An enormously powerful example of our democracy at work. But the people who are committed to this voice, the people who understand why it is so important, to understand what a referendum is, I, th I think it's, it is incumbent on us all to do everything in our power to spread the word. I mean, I'm sounding like a disciple here, which is an odd <laughs> thing for me because I've been a journalist sitting on the fence, yeah. observing through my binoculars or sometimes close up in a ringside seat 
the history as it's made and the decision makers make it and then look at the impact of those things. This is one occasion where I've come off the fence and I'm saying, get involved, understand it, and then explain it to those who don't. And that's how the book will help. It's, uh, you know, we aim for 100 pages, didn't we, Kerry? And we pretty much yeah. landed right on 100 pages. Yeah. You can read it in, you know, I think around an hour, the entire book. So you can put it in the hands of someone even that doesn't read a lot and, uh, and they can get through it pretty quickly. There's, uh, you know, there's infographics and cartoons to help people understand how referenda works and, and all those sorts of things. Well, I think I've discovered that some people don't even know it's compulsory to vote in this referendum. So there is a lot of people out there who didn't realise it's the equivalent of an election. Mm. You know, there's so many areas to cover. And I think last night when I saw the launch, the book launch, Thomas, I think you distilled it really well when you were saying, this is the question that you're going to be asked. And it's a really simple question. Forget about all that question about detail. And would you just mind doing that for us again? Because it was very clarifying for me when I heard you speak about it. Yeah, I mean, all the detail is this, yes or no, to recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first peoples uh, and do that in the way that Indigenous people ourselves have invited you to do, which is to give us a say about the decisions that are made about us. That is what we're voting on. We're not voting on the model or anything like that. It's simply that, you know, recognition and a say. Yeah. And when you, and and you know some people some people rebel at the wording first nations. I mean it's not it's not like this constitution will put indigenous people on the first rung of the national ladder. It's not saying that for a moment. It is acknowledging that this unique and 65,000 plus year culture which basically uh, had custodianship of this continent and of the Torres Strait Islanders and of Tasmania for all of that time. And then adding to that what happened uh, in colonial and post-colonial Australia, putting all of those strands together and acknowledging this unique culture as a fundamental part of our nation, or as Noel Pearson says, the foundation on which our nation is built, then added to and enhanced by the various systems from Britain adopted like the common law system, the, the separation of powers, the, the Westminster, you know, the, the nature of parliament and so on, all of those things which have given us a solidity and a stability as a democracy, even though, even though some of us may feel that, that that democracy is under assault at the moment. So Indigenous history is the foundation of this nation. The British traditions that have been added to basically a democracy founded on a, a, a fair voting system and a rule of law. And then the third strand of our national story, the multicultural layer. And as Pearson puts it, these three stories merging into one rich narrative, that is how we should see this. It is a unifying moment. It's something that gets me very excited. I wanted to also point out something that you do in the book, because I don't think many people will realise that First Nations people were actually actively excluded from the rule book, mm. like they were excluded at the very beginning. So this is also kind of a, a historical correction of the constitution as well. Yeah, that's right. As, as I said earlier, there were no Indigenous people at the constitutional conventions that led to the federating of this, this nation. And I think uh, this is one way to put it to people about whether they vote yes or no. 
if we were to start again, would Indigenous people be at those conventions or not? Of course. You know, I think people acknowledge we are a distinct part of this nation. Our connection to this place is profound and we would be part of those discussions. We would be part of what constitutes us as Australians. Yeah. There was a really interesting analogy as well in this book and it was about saying, you know, if aliens drop down in Australia right now and saw us conveniently as an inferior culture and decided to colonise our country, we would call them invaders. Of course we would. And you point out that that's what Governor Philip did 235 years ago. And I think that was a really excellent way to make the point, to try and make it even more clear. These are stolen lands. They're not being ceded through this constitutional change either, which is a question in this book that you answer. And there are so many other questions and debates that come up in this book towards the end. There's a great question and answer section. And I thought it might just be useful to debunk some of the most obvious ones. Obviously, symbolism being a major one we've heard about from some of the No campaign and also even from some of the really progressive side or perhaps more radical political side of Aboriginal Australians as well. You know, we've heard people like Gary Foley be quite actively against this because he felt that this was not going to contribute to self-determination. And I wondered, Thomas, if you had a a view on that, because self-determination is something that comes up in this book as well. How do you see the voice contributing to that process of self-determination? Well, this absolutely is self-determination because it's self-determination over what we say. It's self-determination over our own voice. I mean, right now, the country Liberal Party in the Northern Territory, which led rights for whites rallies back in the day when the Gurindji mob were fighting for land rights uh, amongst uh, the rest of our, our mob around the country, they choose a senator right now, an Indigenous senator, And she gets up and says, I'm speaking for Indigenous people when she's not even supported by our own community. Not just that party, but any political party can pre-select an Indigenous person and put that person up and say, this person speaks for Indigenous people. An independent can do that, you know, with no accountability to the rest of our mob around the country. Also, uh, you know, corporates can do it. A person in a university can get up and say, I'm speaking for Indigenous people today. I mean, that's just a rabble. That's a mess. Mm. How are we going to further our interests like this without any structure or accountability for Indigenous people to choose our own leadership and hold them to account? Now, this voice establishes a structure from which we can elect our own people from our own communities and hold them to account in regular elections. It gives us some transparency about what our leaders are saying on our behalf, you know? Not meetings behind closed doors with ministers, but some, you know, some governance and transparency about how we are represented. And that is not merely advisory. That is not weak. There is power in that. And if, you know, for the ideologues, if we were to say to the nation, we would have had said, uh, we propose a third chamber to parliament, which we're not, and a right to veto, of course we'd love that. (laughs) But do you think it's going to happen? I mean, we're having a hard enough time getting this across the line. Yeah. But what people need to realise is that this is powerful because of accountability, because of the democracy of it, because of transparency, mm. and and also because the Australian people, through a referendum, if we get an overwhelming yes vote, will have said to all future parliaments that what Indigenous people have to say through their representatives, that that must be respected and acted on. That is powerful. I'll just give one example quickly. 
unions created the Labor Party. When the Labor Party is in government, we can't veto what they do as unions, right? We would love to, of course, again, <laughs> but we can't. But the power is through the ability to organise. The power is through the coherency of our membership, being able to have their debates and discussions and through representation, put forward the best policy to improve the lives of working people. Now, that is powerful. Yeah. Amy, the, 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 the fact that the, the structure of the voice will be determined by the parliament, not by the referendum, all the referendum is doing is actually enshrining in the constitution the permanence of an Indigenous voice making representations to government and to the parliament. The parliament would determine the nature of the voice. But just imagine uh, we get the yes vote through. The parliament and the government between them establish the voice and it has to get through not just the cabinet of the government, it has to get through both houses of the parliament and even though the government might have the numbers in the reps, they don't have the numbers in the Senate and we know that that Senate is a pretty robust one from a whole number of different vantage points. So the process is going to be severely and, and seriously tested before the voice is determined. Let's say that, so the voice is then determined by the parliament, the nature of it. Uh, the indigenous people who are gonna make up that voice on behalf of their communities are selected. They start the process. When they see a policy coming up on education and aspects of that policy clearly are going to impact on indigenous communities, they look at it, they consult with their communities, they put a, uh, a proposal together for consideration as part of what will ultimately end up as the final policy. It goes to the parliament. Let's say it is, it is accepted by the government and then by the parliament and it becomes policy and the policy is implemented. And the end result of that policy, which has included the wisdom of the, of the communities themselves, and indeed, in many instances, in an ideal world, those policies will actually be implemented by Indigenous people in their communities. And then the policies are seen to succeed. The gap is seen to shrink. The strength and the power and the moral authority of that voice and the political authority of that voice will grow. And then it becomes more effective. And it will always be judged both by its communities and by the parliament on the quality and wisdom and effectiveness and practicality of that advice. And so it goes. And if it starts to stumble or it runs into a cul-de-sac, it can reorganise itself into possibly a new form and a more effective form. It can evolve just like every other effective institution in this country has been able to evolve over centuries. But That's what, the story. Yeah. But by this constitutional change, which is only around 93 words, it's guaranteed that we will have a voice and that it may make representations on matters that affect us. That is what we're saying mm -hmm. yes or no to. Recognition through a voice that can make representations. And that point about making representations... I have seen how government works and often when you're on an, a council, for example, or a government board, you'll be involved right at the end and they're like, oh, well, what do you think? Do you want to make a few tweaks around the edges? Well, you're about to introduce it into parliament. <laughs> so, you know, whereas this is about making representations at the beginning, at the early stages, so that you do have a meaningful way of changing policy, actually being part of the development of policy in a way, at least providing advice and making those representations, whether they take them on, of course, is up to government and parliament. But this seems like a highly pragmatic 
really meaningful point, that point about representations to executive government Absolutely. because it will be different. Yeah, the, yeah, the Indigenous leadership on the referendum working group, we, we really stood our ground on that because it's important. As you say, you know, it's if you're trying to influence the, the policies and laws at, at that point where it hits the parliament, well, the decisions have already been made. The, the political plays have already happened. We need to be involved when those policies and, and legislation are being developed at its earlier stages, and that's how you get the best results. And that's why we've ensured that uh, executive government is is part of what we can make representations to. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, that the wheels of government are going to grind to a halt. Kerry and I were in the parliament, again, you know, for the the, the evidence given to the committee on the alteration bill. And... Uh, the most eminent constitutional experts, um, you know, the, the most respected silk in the country, you know, on, uh, on the constitution, Brett Walker. Uh, Brett Walker described this sort of fear-mongering about us having the ability to make representations to the executive government as as fantastical doomsaying, you know. That it would stop government. Yeah. It's and just, that it would clog up the courts. Fantastical doomsaying. Yeah. <laughs> false. It's completely false, you know. It's just... Um, you know, an ability to make representation. Yeah. You know, Amy, we, we, the constitutional experts who were arrayed that afternoon, a former Chief Justice of the High Court and Robert French, another chief, another very highly respected Justice of the High Court in Kenneth Hayne, two, the two preeminent um, constitutional law academics in the country in George Williams and uh, Anne Toomey and Brett Walker, as Thomas says, uh, the combined efforts of the evidence that they made just absolutely cut the ground mm. from under those those claims about why there should not be a voice to executive government. Absolutely cut the ground from under them. I was really disappointed the next day when I saw the, the, the media coverage because I thought there was very little of the importance of what went on in that committee that day. The evidence that was heard from Pat Anderson and and um, uh, Megan Davis and Marcia Langton and Pat Tom and, and Pat Anderson, uh, just absolutely. I mean, you put the combination of together. Really, you didn't need to hear any more than that. It covered the ground. It covered the ground and gave the answers. But I thought the reporting of it the next day let it down. Mm. Well, it is. It's like an open and shut case when you hear that evidence. Yes. But it doesn't sound that open and shut when you hear the reporting on it, is it? It's, no. It's very muddy. And even sometimes when you're seeing positive stories, accurate positive stories about the yes case, there's a there's a negative headline on top of it. Yeah. I mean, I can't understand it. I yeah. really can't. Yeah. There is that underlying racism and discrimination that is always there, whether it's prominent or overt or covert. It's clearly always there and it's coming out in a very ugly way at the moment, especially on social media. I've certainly heard people say that when they tweet a positive thing about, yeah, I'm going to vote yes, you know, they get all these trolls and bots replying really negative, sometimes very racist types of things. So it's it's really frustrating, I'm sure, for all kinds of people participating in the debate, but especially, Thomas, for First Nations peoples and how do Indigenous Australians manage to get through this particularly difficult time where their existence and recognition is being debated publicly. This is obviously an important thing to do, but there are things that will come up that really affect maybe the mental health or the well-being of people going through this. So do you have a, a way of, of seeing how that can be managed? Yeah, so, um, you know, we really need to uh, 
look after each other. Uh, our allies are going to be important in this getting around us. And I know there's, uh, you know, a lot of the people that had a stake in the marriage equality, you know, uh, LGBTQI community uh, understand, you know, just how tough this is going to be. So get around us, help us to succeed in this. I'm hoping the referendum will be mid-October will be the timing. We'll know soon. But we've got to have the courage to do this as well because we know that the status quo isn't good enough. We know that this is something that is going to improve our lives and will set a platform for our children to step up to, a platform that can't be taken away from hostile governments. There's going to be support as well. Um, the Healing Foundation has, a, has developed a program to support us through this, uh, other organisations as well. So um, uh, it's going to be tough. And certainly the vitriol and the racism on social media has gotten a, a lot worse since Peter Dutton and the coalition have taken a, an official position against this. It's disgusting. Um, I don't know how those politicians that are stirring this up can, can live with themselves. Thomas, the, 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 the stuff about the trolling, one of the things that frustrates me about that, quite apart from the ugliness of it and the, and the impact it might have on lives that we may not ever hear about, is, is that they, they really do not represent a lot of Australians. No, they are a minority. They are a serious, a loud they are a serious minority. Yeah. And the other side of this coin that I think it's important for people to understand is that there is an extraordinary level of support around this country for The Voice already in many forms. And when you put the power of all of those forms together, like the fact that all of the church denominations in Australia have signed up to this, that more than 60 multicultural um, representative bodies have signed up to The Voice. The fact that the, that the NRL, the rugby league body, governing body, has signed up to this. The AFL, I think, has signed up yes. to this. Rugby Union Australia, I think, has signed up to this. There are grassroots community organisations right around Australia who are signing up to this. Now, this is going to start to build its own momentum. We should not underestimate the power and the effectiveness of the kitchen table conversation. So on the one hand, you've got, you've got uh, uh, a small body of people making a loud noise. And on the other hand, you've got, in a, in a quieter way, you've got communities organising. And I think it's one of the reasons I have confidence that where there has been a little bit of a slide in the yes vote, still very clearly a majority around the country in every state, I think we're going to see that reversed over the next few weeks because I can't see... Uh, what else there is left, really, for the no vote, the no campaign to manufacture? Yes, they've just got their slogan, which I think they're relying on desperately, clinging on to the the so-called uncertainty around this particular issue. Their slogan being, if you don't know, vote no. But I, I wanted to just say, you know, the reason why these kitchen table conversations seem really vital, and as you guys mentioned last night, they can change minds at the grassroots level. This is something that every individual has power over. It's not outside of their control. It's not part of a politician's scheming. It's not part of the media. This is just you, human to human, with your peers, with your acquaintances. To put it into perspective what the stakes are, because I wanted to get back to this at the end, is to say, you know, to get this referendum across the line, there is a very high bar it's hard to pass any referendum, as you say in this book. There needs to be a majority of Australians and the majority of people in the majority of states, so four out of six states, not the territories, unfortunately. That's a big bar. And 
I think what I really got out of your conversations and this book was the point about when you wake up in the morning, what do you want to imagine? Is it a yes vote or is it a no vote? And what does the world and what does Australia look like after that vote? And also something that Thomas, you said, what if it fails? You know, what are the stakes for First Nations peoples if it fails? Because as you said last night, it's not just the status quo. Could you tell us for you, for First Nations people, what are the stakes? Very high stakes. If we fail at this, then that is basically Australia officially saying no to recognising our very existence, that, uh, you know, we've always been here and that we always will be. It's an official uh, rejection of that proposal to accept our heritage and culture as part of who we all are and that it's always been here. It's also Australia saying no to the, the fairness that we are calling for. Um, the simple notion of a fair go, that when you make decisions about a people, then you should ask them first, um, that those people that are affected by decisions have the solutions that you should listen to. Um, it would be an official dismissal of that. So it's not just status quo if we should fail at this. It's actually going to make things worse. It's going to make treaties harder to achieve. Uh, it's going to give a, a mandate to leaders like Dutton, if they're ever elected, to ignore us and to continue the injustices that we have faced for so long. Um, But if we achieve this, and I do believe a majority of Australian people have sentiments towards voting yes, that, that they want to do something about this. If we achieve this, then we, you know, for all the reasons that Kerry and I have talked about, looking at the, the history and the logic of things, um, then this is going to improve our lives and it's going to improve our standing in the world as a country. It's going to make a big difference. I think the the thing that, I mean, I imagine this to, to really drive me along. I mean, when you look at Pauline Hanson and, you know, Senator Price and Barnaby Joyce, could you imagine waking up and seeing the headlines, you know, on the on the news and the breakfast news that we'd lost the referendum and seeing them smiling because of, you know, that they have rejected this, you know, this, this modest proposal? Are we really going to let that happen in our lifetimes as a country or are we going to win, you know? Um, mm. And we've got to work hard for it. I just finally on this... There has been so much hard work done for this opportunity for Australians to, after all the truth-telling that we've done and all of the work, to simply vote yes to, to, to make this great change in our country. Um, massive amount of hard work. Uh, not taking no for an answer and campaigning for six years to see this opportunity for all of us you know, to, to cast this, this vote. That cannot be wasted. And so my point is that I want the listeners to do the hard work that we did to create this opportunity, to get out there and have those conversations. And one of the points that are made in this book is there's a, there's a guide for having conversations. Um, believe in yourself and the power that you have to, to create this change, to, to achieve this, and to just systematically work through the people that you can influence and have conversations with them and let them know why you're voting yes. And, and this will give you the tools that you need. Um, to confidently have those discussions and you're going to move people 
And then if you ask them to go and do the same thing, then that just expands exponentially. Um, it's the way that we're going to win this grassroots organising. And you provide those resources and the websites that people can go to, like yes23.com.au, togetheryes.com.au. And as you point out, not only so many Australians, as in the non-Indigenous population, but even the polling that you've written in this book, you know, with Indigenous Australians, 80% of them are supporting this. As you say, there's a small minority who may not support it, but this is one part of a suite of things like truth and treaty, which as you say, this is not to exclude that. That's also part of this picture and it's part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart and for people to realise that the voice is a critical part of these other proposals as well. Yeah, absolutely. Truth, Truth-telling truth has been going on for a long time. We don't need to ask for truth-telling. We need a voice to use the truth to get outcomes. The mm. Royal Commission reports are full of truth-telling we're just lacking the political influence to get those recommendations implemented and done in a way that is going to get the best results. We already have treaties underway in the Northern Territory and the states, you know, most states now have treaties underway uh, here in Victoria uh, over a decade into it. Uh, and the experts say they're going to take decades more to reach an outcome that our people can be satisfied with. But a voice is vital to to getting the treaty outcomes that that we deserve as an indigenous people. Yeah. Well, I look forward to when we have a Makarata commission as well and we get to see all of that and having these discussions and grappling really publicly with our history, something we need to do in a much more public way collectively. It's something that as you say has already begun, but it needs to be done even more than we have done. So, thank you both for writing this handbook. The Voice to Parliament Handbook, all the detail you need, it quite literally is, you don't need anything else. I think you just need this handbook and to have some conversations. You've really inspired me and I really hope that this handbook gives people the confidence to get out there and campaign and have these discussions. So thank you both Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien for all this advocacy and work you're doing and also for joining me today. It's been really wonderful to hear from both of you. Thanks for giving us the time, Amy. Thank you, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.